Good evening and a very warm welcome to this uh, LSE Africa Talks uh, public lecture. Uh, my name is Wendy Willems and I'm uh, Assistant Professor based in the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE. Um, this Africa Talks public lecture series is hosted by the LSE African Initiative, uh, which brings together LSE academics and students with a common interest in the study of Africa. And for further details, I would all like to recommend you to check uh, the Africa at LSE blog, uh, as well as to subscribe to the newsletter and follow us on, on Twitter. So I'm very honored to introduce the speaker for this evening's lecture, Professor Sabelo Ndlovu-Gaceni, who is currently the Director of Scholarship in the Change Management Unit in the Vice-Chancellor's Office of the University of South Africa in Pretoria. He's also the founder and the coordinator of the Africa Decolonial uh, Research Network, ADERN, which has been hosting um, the International Summer School on Decolonizing Power, Knowledge and Being in the past uh, three years. And this has been attracting, I think, over 100 students every year from different parts of the world. He's a historian, but also a decolonial theorist who has published extensively in the field of African history, politics and development. His most recent books include Empire, Global Coloniality and African Subjectivity, published in 2013, Mugabism, History, Politics and Power in Zimbabwe, published in 2015, and The Decolonial Mandela, Peace, Justice and the Politics of Life, which is coming out uh, this month. He is also currently finalizing a co-edited book entitled Decolonizing the University in Africa, Knowledge Systems and Disciplines. And in the past decade, um, uh, Professor Ndlovo-Kocheni has begun to, to deploy decolonial theoretical perspective in, uh, perspectives increasingly in his work. And also what's really interesting is that he's engaged uh, quite extensively with Latin American scholars um, in this field. Scholars such as uh, Walter Mignolo, Ramon Grosfuguel, and Nelson uh, Maldonado Torres, and Boaventura de Souza Santos. In 2013, Professor Ndlovu Gacheni was nominated as a fellow um, of the Academy of Science in South Africa, and in 2015, he was awarded the Ali Mazrai um, Award for Excellence in Scholarship. So in today's lecture, Professor Ndlovu Gacheni will examine the student struggles in South African universities through a historical lens. And of course, student demands for decolonization, transformation of the curriculum, and increased access to affordable education are by no means isolated to the case of South Africa, but have also gained a wider global presence in the past year through protests at a range of universities worldwide, including the University of Amsterdam, University of Missouri in the United States, and um, also through the Why Is My Curriculum Wide campaign at several universities in the UK. So furthermore, as many of you are, of course, uh, probably aware, also um, the Roads Must Fall campaign at the University of South Africa, uh, University of Cape Town, has inspired students at the University of Oxford, who demonstrated today to demand the immediate removal of the Rhodes statue at Oriel College. Um, Professor Ndlovo-Gacheni is ideally placed to speak on these issues, not only because of his theoretical uh, expertise, but also because of his more recent role in the change management unit in the Vice-Chancellor's Office at the University of South Africa, where he has been tasked with the, uh, decolonizing and transforming the university. 
So before I invite Professor Lovogacheni to deliver his lecture, I'd just like to make a few logistical announcements. So if we have any Twitter users in this audience, uh, which I imagine we have quite a few, um, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Africa, as it's uh, on the boards. Um, I would also like to ask you, of course, to put your phones on silent so that you don't disturb um, the lecture. This evening's event um, is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast in the next uh, few days, subject to no technical difficulties. So lastly, the format for this evening's lecture is that Professor Lovogacheni will speak for around an hour and then we will have a Q&A, question, a Q&A session where you have the opportunity to ask any questions. So may I now invite Professor Lovogacheni to deliver his lecture. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Chair, for the generous introduction. Um, and thank you for the invitation uh, to share my ideas on this topical uh, issue of roads must fall and why South African universities have become a site of struggle. I must say from this outset that uh, analyzing interpreting and indeed making sense of such an ongoing struggle is very difficult because the dimensions continue to emerge and to change every day. But on my way coming here at the airport in South Africa, I picked a book by Julian Brown entitled South Africa's Insurgent Citizens. Uh, subtitled on dissent and the politics of possibility. And from this book, that's what I was reading as I was flying here, I picked about two issues. One of the issues which is raised in that book is that uh, South Africa has become the protest capital of the world. The second issue which I picked from that book is that uh, South Africa is experiencing a dramatic collapse of a consensus politics and a dream of a rainbow nation. And that today, South Africa is fractured and is characterized by agitated and insurgent citizens. And with these remarks, they provoke two questions. One is, why is South Africa experiencing what it is experiencing? And secondly, what is the role of the university and the university students in this? And my lecture is going to try and respond to these questions. And I must actually warn you from this beginning that as, they, as, as the, the, the chair actually made it clear, I'm a historian. As a historian, I will always take you back before I take you forward. <laughs> um, that's basically what I'm going to talk about. I think one of the the main issues 
which we need all to be clear about, is that there is no day without an article on the roads must fall in South Africa. And the, one of the, the things which is emerging in those articles is that there is this obsession with the present. Attempted to explain the present using the present, it won't work. You will need really to then frame it more broadly in order to understand what is happening. And what I'm trying to do in this lecture is actually to frame first before I then talk about the current uh, issues. <clears throat> well, that's the book which we were just edited and is going to come out this month. Uh, those who are interested, it's published by North Carolina Academic Press. Why is South Africa experiencing what it is experiencing? I think in order for us to understand that, we'll need really to get into a proper framing of the issues in South Africa. And I tried to frame the issues by bringing in the concept of a paradigm of difference. And I'm taking that idea of a paradigm of difference from Viva Imundimbe's work on uh, is the invention and the idea of South Africa, I'm, I'm sorry, of Africa. And I thought that paradigm of difference as a concept is very useful in understanding the core problem in South Africa. The core problem, when I use the paradigm of difference, I'm talking about the core problem of race. But I'm not only talking about the core problem of race, but I'm also talking about the core problem of invention of tribes. And the paradigm of difference also enables us to also talk about the other aspect of the paradigm of difference, which is the core problem of gender, as well, perhaps, the core problem of inequality in South Africa. And the, the concept of paradigm of difference is very helpful in the sense that it then helps us to understand what exactly is the problem. And I want to use the other concept, which is the concept of impossibility of co-presence. The idea that white people and the black people in South Africa cannot live together. They need to live through what is called a separate development. And that does not actually, the story does not actually end there. It proceeds to say, even black people are not one people. And according to apartheid, we have the Kosa, we have the Zulu, you then cut and they fragment the, the black people again into tribes. And this understanding, this failure to deal with the problem of diversity, led the leader of the ANC, Albert, Chief Albert Tuli, to talk about a tragic failure of imagination. And I want to argue that what actually provokes the current problems in South Africa is a tragic failure of imagination. And this tragic failure of imagination, it made some people have illusions that they can actually make the indigenous people of South Africa foreign, and they make the foreigners indigenous. Hence, I'm talking about foreign natives and, foreign, and native foreigners. What a Gillian Hart will talk about is denationalization of the indigenous people. This, to me, is the framing which we need 
And below, that's my historian now trying to actually then articulate how do we end up with that paradigm of difference coming from the Dutch settlement right up to the roads must fall. And I want us to understand roads must fall as part and parcel of the story of the paradigm of difference. How to resolve the paradigm of difference remains one of the issues. It's very hard every time to explain conceptual issues. But this paradigm of difference then enables us to talk more conceptually about the idea of South Africa. And there I try to summarize the problem of the idea of South Africa. This idea that we are struggling to be South Africans. We continue to struggle to be South Africans. And if you, 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 you read the first, the first quotation there, it actually says the struggle has long and it continues to be that of becoming South African. And if you go to the last part, there is an illusion that we have resolved that through the rainbowism concept that we have actually produced. Here was born an idea of South Africa, an idea of South Africa of molding people from diverse origins, cultural practices, languages into one within a framework democratic in character that can absorb, accommodate, and mediate conflicts and adversary interests without oppression and injustice. It looks like this is not true. If ever that was what we intended to do, then it was still born. And up to today, the roads must fall is still speaking about the need for this idea, the shift from the idea of South Africa as defined by the powerful, by the colonizers, by the inventors of apartheid, to the South African idea as defined by the ex-enslaved, the ex-colonized, and those who actually were on the receiving end of, of apartheid. And the roads must fall actually encapsulate that struggle. But continuing to frame, again, because we're talking about the university as a site of struggle, I want also to introduce, uh, to, to, to frame briefly, using two concepts. The concept of a university in Africa and an African university, which do not mean the same thing. And I want to argue that the struggle which the students are involved in, which even some progressive intellectuals are involved in, is a long-standing struggle. And I just demonstrate today that, of course, there was never a consensus. You can see James Africanus advocating for undiluted Western education in Africa. But immediately, he is countered by a Blyden who then asked for an African university. And if you, you, you read that, it is like he is actually part of the roads must fall. Because he talks about the despotic European, Euro, Europeanizing influences which had warped and crushed the mind of the Negro. And in South Africa, you hear students every day talking about, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. In fact, we are still, uh, have, they still express the feeling that they still have this boulder of Europeanizing influences over them. And he continues to say, we want an African university which actually restores the cultural respect among Africans. 
And one of the key issues which actually emerges poignantly from the roads must fall is the issue of alienation. The issue of alienation, and the student speaks very, very eloquently about that. And the rest poison. And the other important issue which actually emerges as early as this period is the issue of what languages are we supposed to use in our teaching. And they blight and talked about all that. The second person who also talked about the same thing is uh, it's, uh, Hayford, who also says, we want a university which is not an imitation of foreign universities. And he also emphasizes that we want a university which preserves in the students a sense of African nationality and that uses indigenous languages. I want to argue that this cry for an African university was never realized. Furabay College, Aya Colleges, when they came, they came as universities in Africa rather than African universities. And I want also to argue that as we move on to post-1945, we have also the exportation of university colleges from the metropole into the colony. And I want to argue that the problems of today actually emanate from this type, from this historical background, where we ended up with the universities in Africa rather than African universities. And where these universities were actu are actually being accused today of the invasion of African mental space, mental universe, emptying the hard disk of previous memory and downloading into them a software of European memory. And with the attainment of independence, or the, the dawn of decolonization in the 1960s, the struggles continues to try and actually get African universities. And that went under the banner of Africanization, which became part and parcel of what we call the African National Project. But the problem with that approach was that there was a tendency to deracialize in terms of bringing in black vice chancellors, black professors, and then increase access, but without dealing with the epistemological foundation of the university itself. Even when the nationalists created more universities, we hear many times we talk about a westernized university in Africa. We, are, we, we see people raising up their hands and saying, no, 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 you are very wrong. Uh, in Kinshasa, there was no university. They were built after, after, after independence. Then we argue that, but you can call a university Mobuto Seseseko University, but without changing the epistemological foundation, it remains the same. So the, uh, the multiplication of universities, but which are actually founded on the same Euro-American Western epistemology, you can name it whatever name you can give it, but as long as we have not changed the epistemic foundation, it remains a Western University. And what happens is that with Africanization, the politics is really about addition. You are actually adding black professors. You are actually increasing the number of black students. But they still, in sociology, they still do Duckham, they still do uh, Max Weber, and others. So you have not changed anything, even if it is mediated by a black body. 
So what I'm trying to argue here is that the addition of black thought into a pre-existing uh, epistemic foundation doesn't change anything. What we need is what Mignolo terms epistemological disobedience. We need to defy and subvert some of those things. Having framed it that way, I want therefore to then zero down to the, our present case study, which is actually South Africa. And I want to go back to my framing, whereby I talked about the paradigm of difference and the impossibility of co-presence, which eventually then legitimizes the use of race and a tribe as organizing principles of the universities, whereby you then have English universities, Africans universities, black universities, black ethnic universities, universities for colors. And up to now, we have not managed to actually deal effectively with these fragmentations born out of the paradigm of difference and the impossibility of core presence. And some of the African thinkers like um, Francis Nyamjo, they then described in general the universities in Africa as European greenhouses under African skies. But the South Africans one become very distinctive in the sense that the racial, the ethnic, and the linguistic division becomes very prominent. Even those which were actually uh, ethnic universities, the epistemology never changed. The Bantu education was just a poor quality of the Western education. Why is the university the site of struggle today? I tried there to actually capture the two uh, issues by actually talking about South African universities as a microcosm of a society whereby the recent event at these universities are symptomatic of the wider social problems deriving from the failure of social transformation in complete reconciliation and the restorative post-apartheid justice. Where does the student come in? And I used the intervention of Achille Mbembe to actually capture how the student then come into this picture. And he says, we are facing a generation of people who are more and more convinced that they've been sold a lie. And they are determined to put on the table some of the questions we have put under the carpet for a long time. The questions of property and property and ownership, the questions of democratization of access, the questions of whiteness, and the questions of, of fairness. And I, I elaborated on these questions by saying the questions of epistemological foundation of the universities, the question of what languages we use in the universities, the role of African languages in the universities, the relevance of what we teach and the irrelevance of what we teach the nature of the curriculum in the universities, white dominance, institutional cultures, investment in black people's education, the naming and the symbols of colonialism, how do we deal with those, the language of instruction, and some of the really university inside issues such as student accommodation, the exploitation of black workers, student debt, 
lack of black academics and the role of uh, the African archive. I think it is these questions which actually at the moment make the South African universities a site of struggle. I'm still continuing with my framing using the paradigm of difference and the possibility of co-presence. That if the universities were actually fragmented into English, Africans, black and ethnic universities, even the student organizations and the student formations were actually permeated by the same divide. And you can see it in the three examples which I gave there, the National Union of South African Students, which was basically dominated by the English-speaking students. And we, we need to say it up front that these students, just like the black students, they actually participated in some of the struggles. But they participated from the perspective of liberals, whereby normally they will demonstrate against maybe anti-terrorism act. They were not actually demonstrating against the whole edifice of apartheid, the system itself. And I remember that in 1968, when Mafeje was actually blocked from taking his position, white students actually demonstrated in the occupied Bremer uh, uh, building. But the argument, was it about that or was it about the institutional autonomy of the university? And Richard Rathbone then captures the problem which was actually facing the, the Liberal uh, uh, Association of Students. says the poor Nossas was detested by government for being radical and detested by blacks for being insufficiently radical. In short, the liberal dilemma. Then the other association was that of African students who, who were in support of, of, of African nationalism. And then the later one was the organization by African students, the South African organize, Students Organization, formed in 1968. And this one was actually informed by the black consciousness uh, ideas. I tried there to summarize the causes of the protests. And those causes which I'm talking about there, they were more pronounced in uh, black ethnic universities where the senates were entirely white, the rectorate was entirely white, and there was a tendency really for the students to then reflect the harshness of the African world outside the university. But inside there were also very authoritarian ways of dealing with the students, where they were not even allowed to have representative councils until they, they fought for them. And today, when I was here, I was just receiving pictures of the police in the universities today. And this reminded me of the 1960s, of the 1970s, where there will be any universities with the dogs. And that was meant to deal with student unrest. What I think is also important about this historical framing is that we need to understand that in the 60s and the 70s, the sites of struggle were actually black universities. 
But if you look today, the sites of struggling are not entirely black universities. The sites of struggling are actually taking place in the unreformed uh, so-called elite universities of today. But when the black students began to agitate, unlike the liberal ones, they were actually agitating for, against the whole order of apartheid. And some of them, they were saying it was unnecessary to really acquire education before liberation. And I'm using the case study of the Tuflof campus, the University of North, where it became really the site of struggle between 1968 and 1972. And I'm giving that, that case study because some of the issues which were raised by then are still the issues which are raised today. If you see the president of SRC in 1972 talking about condemning want to education, how black parents were treated, lack of black academics in the leadership of the university, these are the issues which even today we are still talking about. But what is also important about understanding what was happening at Tuflof campus is that there is a tendency today to talk about the roads must fall vis-a-vis -vis 1976 uprising. But what I'm trying to argue here is that the 1976 uprising cannot be dissociated from what was taking place at Tuflop campus. When the administration decided to actually expel a number of people who had taken part in the, in the demonstrations at that universities. They, they actually went to Soweto to teach in the schools in Soweto. And they spread the black consciousness in those schools. And those, to me, those were the seeds of the Soweto uprising. So there is linkage between what was happening in Tuflop campus and the Soweto uprising. And one of the, the, the leading figures there was Tyro, who was actually a president of Student Representative Council in 1972, who actually went to teach in Soweto. Uh, of course, because he was always spreading the black consciousness movement, he was even fired from the school. Then he went into exile in Botswana, and he was assassinated in 1974. So what I'm trying to, to do here is actually to see the genealogies of the struggles. That what is happening today is not new. There might be new dimensions, but it's a continuation of... I'm, I'm not giving really a day-to-day -day blow of the history of South Africa. I'm actually picking what I think is important. I think one of the issues which we need to engage with, which is also important today, is what happened with the transition. Did we really deal with the paradigm of difference? Did we, how did we deal with the, the impossibility of core presence? How did we deal with the question of denationalization of indigenous people? Did the transition really deal effectively with those three issues which I used to frame the talk today? And I, I want us to, to, to then uh, reflect briefly on the mechanisms which were used to deal with these problems. The paradigm of difference, of course, the whole Cortesa negotiations, to me, was an attempt to find each other across that paradigm of difference. 
And as we're trying to find each other across that paradigm of difference, there were many trade-offs which then took place, resulting in the production of what some people celebrate as the most progressive constitution. But I want to pose a question. Some of the so-called progressive constitutions, they actually constitutionalize injustice. And if you constitutionalize injustice, you can actually refer to the same constitution and say, but it is in the constitution. But it is constitutionalization of injustice. How did they try to break the practices of impossibility of co-presence? Of course, we all know about the TRC, the whole popularity of the issue of forgiveness founded on Ubuntu ideology and the reconciliation. And how did we try to deal with the denationalization of the indigenous people? Of course, we spoke about it in terms of democratization, in terms of restoration of human rights, and in terms of rainbowism. But I want also to argue that the transition was caught up in tensions between a human rights drive, a discourse, and the market-determined neoliberal discourse. The, discourse, the imperative to internationalize versus the imperative to decolonize and indigenize. The imperative of rights versus the imperative of justice. And it will look like, if you look at the broader discussive policy-making framework, it looks like the discourse of the market determination the imperative of internationalization and globalization tended actually to then override that of decolonization and indigenization. And you can see it in the, in the, in the police framework whereby there is this idea of let's adapt to the global economy. Let's actually produce uh, workers for the global economy. Um, let's actually abandon the whole issue of democratizing and the goal for globalizing. Let's adapt to what they, they, they told us is a knowledge-driven world. Let's do the national qualifications framework, which actually is in line with international standards. And I'm not sure what are those international standards, but that is exactly what happens. Then what, 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 what comes out of that is what uh, Francis Namjo then talks about is greenhouses of potted plants whereby you tend to skill you don't necessarily educate how am I doing on time? Uh, about 10 minutes uh, well, plenty of time still 20 okay. minutes okay. Okay. I wanted also to you see, the, the major problem of inviting a historian, I always wanted to, to, to actually demonstrate things empirically. What are the challenges of transformation? I can't just talk about the challenges of transformation abstractly like that when there are realities on the ground. And here I'm actually using the four case studies to actually demonstrate empirically the challenges of transformation. The first case which I want to talk about is the case of Achimafeje. 
before I went to the Vice Chancellor's office, I was actually working as the head of Achimafete Research Institute. And Achimafete is one of those black intellectuals who actually experienced exclusion, racial exclusion directly in 1968 when he was appointed as a senior lecturer in social anthropology at UCT. And it looks like from what my reading, the government intervened to block his appointment. And because of that blockage of his appointment, he left the country and spent over 30 or so years in exile. In the 1990s, with the unpanning of the political formations, Mafete tried to make way back into UCT. And what he experienced amounted really to an insult for somebody who had been abused in 1968. In 1990, he tries to join UCT. The first thing they said was that there is no money to hire him. When the pressure mounted, they then offered him one year visiting senior research fellow. The insult part of it, he was appointed as a senior lecturer in 1968, appointable as a senior lecturer in 1968. But in 1990, they still appoint him at that level for a professor who have taught in Dar es Salaam, who have taught in the Netherlands, who was really a renowned African scholar by then but they put him at the rank of a senior lecturer still. So he decided not to take it. But under pressure from some, some of his colleagues, they then also asked him to apply for the A.C. Jordan Chair in African Studies. And again, if you read the circumstances around the shortlisting and everything, it is very interesting to note that they talked about him. He was not there, that he was a drunkard. He was very hard to work with. And that while he is working in Namibia, he has always been saying petty things about UCT. You see, rumor really determining the appointment of somebody. So the first meeting of trying to shortlist ended without a result. But later, the second meeting, they then agreed to shortlist him. And they, when they shortlisted him, he then moved from Namibia to Cairo, to American University in Cairo. And the, the technicality was that he did not inform the office of his new address, so he was never called for the interview. But when they were now writing the letter of regret, they found the address and they wrote to him. <laughs> this infuriated Mafeja to the extent that when he was offered a, a in honorable doctorate, he refused to take it. It was only accepted by his family after his death, after two or seven. That's the case of exclusion. The second case which I want to talk about is the Mahoba affair at Vets University. Mahoba was actually recruited to be the first deputy vice chancellor uh, of Vets University. Mahoba began to make arguments about transformation and Africanization. He even spoke about his dismay about white mediocrity. And immediately after raising those things, a case was built for him. 13 white academics plus one African-American, they prepared 
297-page document alleging that Mahova had embellished his CV, that he was administratively incompetent, that he was making comments that were harmful to the university. And because of that, he was then demoted to a senior professor at the university and then out of the system. This I'm talking about because it shows the challenges of trying to transform and change the system. The third case is the case of Mahmoud Mamdani. I think that one is well known to many people. He ended up taking the the chair which Mafeche was never interviewed for, the AC Jordan Chair in African Studies. And he then tried to actually engage in curriculum change by introducing this course called Problematizing Africa. Haley was let loose immediately, he produced that course. In the narratives, it is said that when he submitted it, they said, submit it, we will comment on it, and come back to you. But instead of receiving that, those comments, he received a, an offer of a one-year sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was a bit taken aback. Why is he being offered that one-year sabbatical? And while that offer was still standing, they produced another course. A team was assembled quickly, which produced another course, which Mahmoud Mamdani felt like it was an insult that a person of his standing, whom he is actually a specialist on Africa, he could have been allowed to actually do the, the, the course alone. But there was this team and in his critique of this course, he found some, some people who actually come from the DRC, they are said to come from Nigeria. There was some really incompetence in understanding who this person comes from, even that course. But he says the argument then which obtained was that there was emphasis that no, his course was too sophisticated for the type of candidates. Uh, what we want is actually skills not this, this notion of problematizing uh, uh, Africa. And he, he says what really hit him on the face is the question of who should be making decisions about curriculum change and how is Africa to be taught in a post-apartheid society. Those were the challenges which he faced until, until he left as well. Then the, the other case is that of Robert Shelley at uh, at uh, Rhodes University. He was from America. He also made similar noises about transformation and produced a 400-page report detailing, detailing the non-transformative management style. Uh, he actually raised the issue of white corruption, nepotism, and even racism. This one, because he was a foreigner, they just chased him away. Having given that background, I want then, therefore, to talk about the roads must fall. 
and I'm told I've only 15 minutes, I think I was a bit slow. Um, I want to talk about roads must fall. I think there are two, there might be more, but to me there are two readings about the road must fall. One which for a lack of a better word, I will call the neoliberal reading or neoliberal interpretation of roads must fall. And if you want to read about this one, you must actually go to the Helen Sussman Foundation. There is a special issue of their journal entitled The Idea of the University. And it is about five, seven articles there, which, which in my reading, they provide a clear neoliberal interpretation of the university, where they really see the roads must fall as another reformist movement. And they emphasize the issue of diversity instead of decolonization. <clears throat> and there is also some condescending attitude towards what the students are saying. This idea of arguing that the students are misreading Fanon, they are misreading Biko. Biko is not saying that. But I think from a decolonial perspective, what we need to do is actually to adopt what I will call a decolonial attitude. And a decolonial attitude will tell us that we need to know that we are not the only producers of knowledge. There are many other producers of knowledge. And we need to understand that what the Roads Must Fall movement have produced, it might be called a student archive, which needs to be carefully understood. Rather than to say, no, I think they... But who has the certificate of saying this is the way you read Fanon, this is the way you read Biko? There is nobody who has a certificate of saying that. And the most interesting part, the students are reading Biko and Fanon outside the academy, not in the academy. Because in the academy is not even there. And if you read the neoliberal interpretation, you will find that there is this concern about violence and the fiscal health of the institutions. A language is not approached in terms of its linkage with being and identity is actually understood merely as communication and an instrument of instruction. And then there is the whole issue of renaming. That document tells us that no, you need to name you need to mix both the Western and the African traditions. But that's not what the student archive is saying. This is their own interpretation. So I will then want to just oppose that with what I will call a decolonial interpretation. The students have not been shy about where they drive their ideological uh, resources. They actually say the Roads Must Fall movement is a Black consciousness movement, informed by people's ideas. And they also argue that it is a decolonial movement, not an Africanization or a transformation movement. But we are already having problems in universities by people saying, yeah, no, what we are engaged in is transformation and the Africanization. But the students are saying, no, we have moved beyond that. We no longer want transformation. You failed to transform. And the other thing which is emerging from a decolonial perspective is that they are talking about changing the very idea of the university. They are actually questioning the very epistemological foundation. 
And there is something very interesting about what the students have done. The emphasis today is all about the students being violent. But there are other silences which are actually there. At the University of Witwatersrand, the students of political studies have actually written a curriculum which they then presented to the, to the department for discussion. That is not talked about. It's all talked about the vein which they paint or something like that. The other thing which they talk about, for, for lack of a better term, is what we call cognitive justice. Premised on the very simple principle that all human beings are born into a knowledge system. And there is a clear emphasis in the student archive on the need to shift the geography of reason from Europe to Africa. And perhaps even shifting the biography of knowledge from white men to black, brown, and even to women. Because the very why you are raising that, we are raising that is very important because all of the theories you are reading are male, they are white. Uh, where are the women, where are the black thinkers? We went to a bookshop and they wanted to go to the philosophy section. I failed to get even one black philosopher. And when we asked the person who was selling, he said, I'm very sorry, I don't know any black philosopher. Then the other thing is the way they, they, they talk about language. It is very different from the way liberals talk about language. For them, the whole issue of language is linked with, their, with identity, is linked with the career of a civilization. And even the way they are talking about the right to education, it is not about affordability. According to them, we need quality, relevant, and a free education. And this has been debated a week before I came here, two vice chancellors were actually at the University of South Africa and they were debating about the issue of financing the, the education system. And the debates, the students were there, the debates really became a bit ugly in the sense that some were talking about affordability and the students were saying we want free education. And the debate then came around where one vice chancellor was saying, no, if we make education free for everyone, we will still reproduce inequalities. Because there are some people who afford, who can pay. Why not finance those who can't afford? Because if we say free for all, it means these ones who have money, then we will have extra cash to also move ahead of those who are poor. Then the other important thing which is emerging clearly from the Roads Must Fall movement is the question of alienation within the universities that the cultures are still predominantly white, that they need the issues of racism are still there, that such basic things as somebody refusing to pronounce your name properly. For five years he's refusing to pronounce your name properly. Then the other issue which emerges, and this I'm actually constructing from what I call the student archive, what their placards were saying, what the graffiti they produce say, what their memoranda say. That's what I'm, I'm actually constructing this narrative from that type of literature. And the, one of them is the depatriarchization, aimed at punishment of patriarchy, sexism, sexual harassment, 
and the blockages to female academic advancement. And there was a case at VETS that there is only one female full professor <clears throat> who is black. And then the issue of statues, of course, uh, around Rhodes uh, statue. We started with the Rhodes statue uh, at UCT. And I want also to take advantage of this to say one of the major problems which one student actually raised was that there is a tendency to say the uprising started at UCT with the, the, the plating of sheet on Rhodes' statue. And this student was saying, but the, the issues started at TUT. But because it was only black students, it never attracted the media attention. It, only when it moved into the white spaces, that's when it attracted the media attention. Then the other thing which actually arises prominently from this is the insourcing of services. And the, the roads must fall, they are reading it as really dealing with the broader question of dehumanization of black labor. And how much do we want time? Uh, five minutes. Sorry. Oh, now I'm touching the wrong thing. No, I'm about to finish. I, will. <laughs> I think I will. What then is the current state of the debate? And I thought it would be better to try to understand it at three levels, from the government perspective, the vice chancellor's perspective, and the student perspective. Of course, the government has been forced to act. Uh, of course, one of the actions is the 0% zero, zero increase in fees for 2016, which is a temporal measure, but they've gone further to, to actually cater for that shortfall in the 2016 budget. And they've also promised that there might be no fees increase for the next two years. But the vice chancellors were saying, what happens after two years? It means we'll be back to square one. So we need to find a sustainable funding model. And the government says they've actually put a task team which is looking into the issues, and they will report, I think, in October. The concern uh, now is all about violence. And then the issue of statues. There is a funny way they have actually tried to deal with the issue of statues. There is some way where they have actually put about 55 statues together as part of saying the black, the white, the, the statues speaking to each other, people who never spoke to each other when they were alive. <laughs> but that is an issue of still trying to bring this rainbow idea together. Then for the vice-chancellors, I actually work in the vice-chancellor's office. There was really a panic, and that panic made us to quickly form what we call change management unit where I'm working at the moment. It's a very, very, it's a space which I don't even know what I'm trying to do. <laughs> what we've tried to do there is that I was put in as a director responsible for scholarship, that I must influence change within the scholarship. Then there's another one which is put there who then deals with the culture change. Then there is a third one who deals with the ICT transformation. 
Then we were lacking two. One is one who was supposed to deal with systems change, and the other one was supposed with the curriculum. For the time being, I need to double with the scholarship and the curriculum, but I'm not trained in curriculum change at all. But that's, that's how the universities have actually reacted in attempting to pretend that we are doing something. Uh, that I'm actually going to be back to actually sit on this thing and trying to make head and tail of how do we change. And this change becomes very difficult. I've been talking about decolonization from a theoretical perspective. Then they said, no, you've been talking about this thing, come and do it. <laughs> you are doing this in, at a university. University is not a site of consensus. University is generally a site of dissensus, of debate. People debate everything. You can't go to a department or a faculty and say, please change your, 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 your curriculum. They will ask you why. <laughs> because there are some who don't see the need for change. So what you are doing so far is just to have seminars where we then talk about the need for change in the hope that it will percolate into the mind of others and then they change. <laughs> And I think it will be even more difficult for the natural sciences. If a historian walks into the natural sciences, they have a low opinion of humanities and social scientists. So how do I then go to explain to them why they must change chemistry, physics, and all that? It will be a tall order. But we will try. Then one of the other problems which will actually cause major problem is the way they are dealing with the continuing students' uprisings. Court interdicts and the bringing in of the police to the universities. And this has already caused a lot of violence. And I don't know how they can deal with it. But one of the issues is what I was talking about at the beginning when I was saying you must develop a decolonial attitude. The attitude to be able to listen to what other people are saying. The attitude not to rush to judge that all oh, students have become the barbarians at the gate, let me call the, let me call the police every time. <clears throat> but the students, they are adamant that they cannot postpone the struggle again. They must actually continue to put pressure for change. I'm not sure how far this will go. When I was here, I was told in my university that indeed the police were now inside and the, uni the university students were now outside the university. And there is all this talk about the militarization of universities. In conclusion, I want to argue that the students have brought back to the, to the public discourse an important debate. And I want also to argue that this important debate seems to be threatening the rainbowism. A rainbowism which actually existed underneath it, the paradigm of difference was still not touched. And I want to argue that 
Mandela is actually being tossed around. Those who don't want to change, they are saying now they are for Mandela. <laughs> Mandela is back into the public court. The number of articles being written now that Mandela was a sellout. But what is actually coming out clearly is that the ills of the post-apartheid social and political order are being unmasked and laid bare. It's becoming clear that the universities, which actually have taken even a number of black students, the cultures they have not changed. But what is also important is that we are beginning to see the descendants of the enslaved, the colonized and the racialized people, who were, who were, whom we were told for a long time that they cannot think, they are not rational. They are beginning now to speak and they are bringing their thinking into the center of the university. And with the statue of Cecil John Rose, the students continue to say, we are not fighting against the bronze statue of Rhodes per se, but we are actually fighting against what the Rhodes stand for. And the Rhodes stands for enslavement, for racism, for naturalization of inequality, and there's so many other things. And to see his statue every day is offensive. And finally, I want to argue that we are in a phase which, are, for lack of a better word, we are actually in a phase where those who were once colonized are rewriting the history of South Africa from a colonized perspective. And the redefinition of the idea of South Africa, from the idea of South Africa, which was permeated by Anglicization, Africanization, to one of the South African idea, where black life matters. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, uh, Professor Lobo Gacheni, for this um, theoretically informed and deeply historical analysis and for also giving us some insights into the present and the future, nevertheless. So I'd now like to invite the audience um, to engage with this talk and to ask any questions. Um, please try to keep your questions short and sweet so that we can take as many as possible. And I'd like to suggest we take a number of questions at the same time. Uh, there should be a few roving mics uh, uh, around. So let's start with the question at the back there. And then I saw a hand on my right. And a question here. Let's take these three first. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. I was very much interested in the development of um, Africanization of how we can build an academic space uh, for building history, uh, the history of the African continent and South Africa specifically. Why not simply use uh, students who are already doing history courses who are doing a doctorate? Why not just simply use them to help build a, a history department about, Af about the African continent. Thank you. Um, Fundo? Yep. I, I was almost surprised that you're not going to mention uh, 
Mandela, but you did at the end. Uh, <laughs> I was going to assassinate you for that. Um, the looming legacy of Mandela, mm. perhaps in a way, uh, pampered over, or at least ensured, in my thinking, the uprising or, I mean, that we see in South Africa. Is there a link to the kind of strikes that we see today to the death of Mandela? And is there a Mandela in South Africa that can deal with the challenges that we are seeing in South Africa, or at least an institution that can push the kind of issues that the students in South Africa uh, I mean, are pushing? Are they possible? Thank you very much. And a question here. Um, well, thank you, Professor, for a fantastic talk. I found it very, very rich and um, thoughtful, and your analysis was sharp. Um, so my name is Simukai Chigudu. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, uh, and I've also been heavily involved uh, in the Rose Most Fall campaign at Oxford University, and in fact took, pl- took part in the march that happened this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, within Oxford, where Rhodes himself was educated, mm-hmm. uh, the university is strewn with any number of tributes uh, to the great men of empire, uh, and indeed to numerous slaveholders and so forth. And this has created a great degree of dissatisfaction and unrest from Mm. people coming from a whole range of other identities that don't fit neatly uh, into the white male uh, upper class one that's privileged uh, within the university. And I guess my question is, you know, given your reflections on um, decoloniality as a mindset and an organizing framework, Mm. to what extent is it meaningful to have a decolonizing campaign within a place like Oxford, Mm. sitting as it does at the heart of Britain? Thank you very much. I would like to suggest that uh, Professor Lovgutin takes these questions first before we invite two more. Okay, I think I saw a hand there. Yes, yes, yourself. Yes, yes, please. Uh, Thank you, Professor. I found your um, talk very informative. Uh, I'm Zimbabwean myself, so Rhodes, he um, had the audacity to name name our country after him, so this affects me in a very personal way. I'd like to get your views on what you feel like... um, outside of South Africa moving forward for the rest of Southern Africa because we know that his genocide and Mm -hmm. his works went further than South Africa, how other African countries, particularly in the South, can move forward and also try to decolonize because we know, even from my experience in our secondary schools and higher tertiary Mm -hmm. education institutions in Zimbabwe, we still have relics of colonialism and even the colonial Mm -hmm. education system structure persists today, so how do you feel we can also move forward? And further, just lastly, what do you think is the role of the female student um, in the struggle? We saw that many of the presidents of the student unions in South Africa, at UCT, at WITS, um, a lot of the prominent members were actually female students. So how do you think um, mm. females are going to be able to continue this legacy? Mm. Thank you. Mm. Okay, and let's take a fifth question there, and then I think we should give you a chance to respond. Could you speak up a little bit? Uh, it's not very clear. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it's clear. I could hear. Yeah. Okay. My question is: What's your take on this protest in transforming the largest South African society in terms of how it treats other African citizens and their families, especially with respect to xenophobia, coming from a country where I cannot access South Africa? How does it structure the whole Pan mm. African relationship getting matters? Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, would you like to take uh, can this? Do you want to come here? Maybe. I think some of the questions are actually uh, related. 
what are the protests telling us about the South African society and what is the relationship between these protests and the such problems as the problems of xenophobia. I think when I was talking about the issue of uh, the paradigm of difference, I'm not actually excluding xenophobia from that. The issue of xenophobia might not actually be a South African problem. It's a, it's a problem uh, in many places. Xenophobia and the racism to me are not very different. It's just that they are born of the same mother and that mother is the one I was talking about as the paradigm of difference. And what we have been trying to, to, to actually talk about most powerfully is that the issue to decolonize will also deal with the problem, such problems as xenophobia. Because xenophobia is also born out of the same problem of, of difference. We have seen difference and it also is linked to the problem which I talked about, the problems of inequality. And the problem whereby you have what Mamdani will, will term a non-revolutionary violence, where the poor really decapitate each other. That's, that's, that's our take on the issue of xenophobia. It's a, really a, mis, a miscognition of, of the problem from a decolonial perspective. It's a miscognition of the problem. It's an assumption that if you decapitate the head of another poor person, then you'll be better, which doesn't, doesn't follow. And secondly, the issue of xenophobia, we need to understand where is it taking place. It is taking place in the poor townships. And the poor townships in South Africa are generally not safe for the indigenous as well as for the foreigner. Even if you remove the foreigner, it doesn't become a peaceful environment. So there is a problem bigger than the foreigner native division. That, that, that from a decolonial perspective, is really a, mis a misrecognition of the problem. So the decolonization project, its attempt is really to say, let's understand the deeper structural issues which then produce inequality. And let's not blame somebody who has nothing as well. Even if you decapitate that one, it doesn't change anything. And this question actually links with the other question. Because if you talk about racism, you talk about patriarchy, you talk about tribalism, you talk about xenophobia, they are actually all nexus of a one problem. They are part and parcel of one problem. And that problem, for lack of better term, is what broadly I called the paradigm of difference. Unless we really cross that paradigm of difference. I remember Louis Aragoden arguing some time, saying that uh, when, when, when William Dubois talked about the color line, that was a metaphor for many other lines. The sexual line, the class line, the ethnic line, the xenophobic line is part and parcel of the same problem. 
and the decolonization actually speaks about that line. We need actually to deal with that line. My colleague from Zimbabwe is talking about decolonization. How do we talk about it in relation to the broader region? That was the question, yeah? I think one of the arguments which we need to, to underline is the difference between anti-colonialism and decolonization. I think we need really to underline that. Anti-colonialism is a very poor form of a liberatory discourse in the sense that it doesn't actually go to change the institutions and the structures. It's actually removal of white faces, then you put black faces into the same structures and the reproduction of the same problems. And the decolonization, which is re-emerging now, is actually wants to change. We always use the word rethinking thinking itself and even unthinking some of the things. And if we take it that way, then most of the countries still need to undergo decolonization. And if we talk about Zimbabwe, of course Zimbabweans are very proud people of that their education is the English education. So I'm not sure how, how decolonized they are. And I hope I've already answered the other thing about uh, the other issue about these female students. That one of the major problems about the modern power structure is the, the problem of patriarchy, which is actually embedded in it. And you, our argument is always you cannot decolonize without depatriarchizing. It is an important uh, part of the strategy that you, when you decolonize, you need to depatriarchize. When you depatriarchize, you need to detribalize. When you detribalize, you need to deracialize. And the perhaps overall, then you can attain a deeper form of democratization. Roads being criticized inside the empire. I always thought Rhodes was a hero in, the, in England and a villain in Africa. But it looks like if Rhodes indeed represents what I said he represents, enslavement, plunder, dispossession, racism, and the idea that his own race are the only people, the idea of a world without others, then there is no civilization or culture which might claim him honorably. And I think also the other thing which is emerging, who are the people who are behind the rose must fall in Oxford? Are they the British people? Or they are actually demonstrating that when we are talking about the universe, the university, the uni part of it, it means it must accommodate everyone. And there mustn't be these statues which actually are offensive to others. 
I've not been actually following the key contours of the argument on the roads must fall in Oxford. But it looks like there is this idea that the university must own up. If it says it is a university, it can't be keeping such type of symbols at its centre. I'm hesitant to comment about Mandela. I actually did a book on the decolonial Mandela. Mandela, at the moment, there is a generation really, I think, is Malai Kawa Azania, who wrote an article, Mandela is not my liberator. And the Malema was here sometime also saying Mandela was a sellout. And today there was an article by one of the stalwarts of the struggle, uh, Satna, who was trying to correct people, saying, no, but Mandela was not a sellout. We needed to appreciate the conditions within which he was negotiating, why he negotiated the way he negotiated, and arguing that, of course, he symbolized a compromise. But what is it that Mandela stands for? was Mandela not attempting to really transcend the paradigm of difference? Was Mandela not trying to actually take people back into the line of the human, the line of the human which actually includes everyone? Because at the moment, the critique is that Mandela was very soft on white people. He, he really, like the imprisonment, actually broke him, broke his spirit. Mandela was decolonial, but when he came out, he was something else. And I remember that one of the stalwarts of the liberation struggles in South Africa, who came out and when he was interviewed, he said, I spent all my life in prison fighting for liberation, and when I got out, I was told that I was fighting for democracy. Something which I never, when I went into prison, talked about. When I went to prison, I was actually going to fight for liberation. But when I came out, I was congratulated, and now we have achieved democracy. Something which you never even fought for. I'm not sure this disciplining, disciplining of liberation movements throughout history, that they become actually revolutionary movements, but by the time they reach the end, they are actually reformist movements. That's one of the, the interpretations. By the end of the 1990s, the ANC was no longer a liberation movement. It was an anti-apartheid movement. Whenever you legislate apartheid out of, out of existence, then that's what they fought for all these years. But I doubt whether that is the issue. And what the roads must fall, they are taking people back to say, but what, what, what is the content of liberation? I didn't get the first question properly about the history. It was the about first. using history students in the Africanization of, of the curriculum. Is that right? Or would you like to briefly repeat your question? Well, I was a student at the in the history and international relations. One of our key students was actually doing the doctorate. Yes. 
their work being used? Why is the work of current uh, history and international relations students not being used in the Africanization of the curriculum? Is that right? In fact, uh, itself, it's okay. yeah. in fact, it's an important question in the sense that if people are forced to do something which they were not aware of by a particular force, and then when we are forced, we then begin to then take charge and pretend that we were for change. It's not, it's not really being genuine in what we are doing because it was the students' protest which actually forced us to enter into the mode of transformation. And because of that, I agree with you that the students need to play a role in the change. That's why I actually gave the case study of the vet students who went on to write a curriculum and then presented to the, to the, to the department. But they know what they want to do. The problem is if you misinterpret, because the decolonization of the mind is basically the issue of learning to unlearn. You learn to unlearn that only old people know. Younger ones don't know anything. If you don't learn to unlearn that, you will have a problem because you have a problem of failing to listen to younger people. How can a young person, what can a young person tell me about curriculum? I've been alive for all these years. Okay, I think we have space for one or two uh, more questions. There's many hands, um, but I don't think we're going to be able to accommodate all these questions. So um, I think Basani, yeah, yeah, you'd like to start. Um, thanks, Professor. That was most illuminating. Um, my question is around um, uh, universities as a site of privilege, just in general because they are universities. Mm. Uh, specifically, in, within the South African context, I think it's more, it's more so the case, uh, where you find that um, uh, those who enter, of those who enter mm. uh, primary education, mm. 36% of those are matriculate. So we've got a very high fallout rate. Okay? Um, and so 70%, let's just say, is left out of the system. Mm. And so when we think about saying fees must fall and uh, basically, and it's not to say that those who, uh, who matriculate will all end up in university, yeah. right? But then even so, if we think of fees must fall, um, like that we actually don't have fees, it will only just accommodate that, those, uh, the, 70, the 37%. Mm. And I was quite interested in what you were saying about, like, in 76, mm. those who were... Sorry, this is... Getting yes, out. Sorry, sorry, but like, I, basically, I feel like the revolution needs to get into basic education, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we are not, and, and I'm, and I'm seeing like a, reprodu a reproduction of class even mm -hmm. within university. Mm -hmm. And how do we get to that point as well? Mm -hmm. Excellent question. Okay, mm -hmm. um, I see a hand there, and I see a hand there at the back. Yeah. And I think that's where we, unfortunately, will have to leave it. <laughs> I'm very sorry about this. But. Professor, Professor, thanks very much. This kind of follows on from that conversation, actually. Um, according to studies that whoever writes these studies that you read about, um, the number of universities in the United States will halve in 20 years. Um, Harvard will have 10 million students. Mm. That's partly a tech-driven Western phenomenon. Mm. 
But surely instead of trying to improve and decolonize universities, shouldn't we be thinking about de-universitizing academics in any event? Because most people view universities as a passport to socioeconomic emancipation. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we just be thinking Mm -hmm. about democratizing and disaggregating that access? Mm. Should we be thinking about getting rid of universities Mm. entirely? Thank you very much. And then our last question is over there. Hi, um, thank you so much for your talk, Professor. Mm. I'm down here. (laughs) Um, You spoke briefly about it now, but I wanted you to perhaps get to the practicalities of the age gap. There's the issue of young people speaking to older people and older people not listening. So you heard the, Mm. maybe you heard the talk 702 conversation between um, and and then there's the how do because you've now been appointed um, to lead this change that universities now have to quickly put together and if some of you um, don't listen to us if, if some of, of you course. don't have the decolonial mind and you're put in these places to actually put change forward that we've mm. seen isn't working what what do we then do? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Great questions. I would like to invite you to give a brief response, if okay. possible. Okay. <laughs> um, I always like to start with the last one. Um, I think without really changing our attitude particularly the attitude, the failure to listen, we won't achieve anything. Because the, the issue is there is nobody who has a clear answer on what to be done. The changes which will take place, they will actually be born out of a genuine conversation with the different stakeholders. It won't really be about, because we were put in this position, you know what is supposed to happen. My take has always been that I've been put in a space where I will need to galvanize debate, conversation, and be able to listen to, to different stakeholders. And in the decolonial uh, project, we have this concept of learning to unlearn. You know, you learn to unlearn the arrogance of coloniality and all these other things of saying uh, Noahs are professors, those who are not professors are not Noahs, Noahs are white, those who are not white are Noahs are men, women don't know. All those things, we need to unlearn those things. It's a painful process which we need to undergo if we want to achieve what we have set out to do. The two questions, the one on privilege and the other one on why should we focus more on democratizing higher education. This is why I'm saying it is important that we listen to students, because the students, they actually put forward that argument as well, that this issue of decolonizing must not actually start at the university level. It must go down into, into the school system. When people come to the university, they are already finished. We always have this joke that if you have no PhD, 
in Africa, they say you are incomplete. If you have a PhD, you are completely finished. <laughs> you have actually gone through the whole ritual of colonization <laughs> up to the end. So it's a really a catch-22 situation because by the time you, you are given professorship, they have actually they've signed that you are for us, not the other side. <laughs> so it's, I don't know how we then untangle ourselves out of this. But it is important that not everyone needs to aim to be at the university. They are what we call FETs, which generally, because of the unemployment issue, people decide that perhaps the university gives you the chance to be employed. That's why people go to the universities. But it, I think we need to think more. When, when we decolonize at the end of the day, we need to rethink the whole education system itself that it must not just be narrowly going to, towards the university every time. I think I will end it there. <clears throat>